How many of you are ready to get into the Word tonight? First Peter. We're going to finish chapter 2. It is so rich, so good, such good stuff. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you right now for the blessing of God on the Word of God. Lord, we approach your Word knowing that it's not a normal Word, a typical Word, but it's a supernatural Word. It is a God-breathed Word. And Lord, you have given it to us as food for our soul. And we pray, Lord, that as the word goes forth, you will give us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be glorified in this house tonight, Lord. And we thank you for it in the mighty name of Jesus. Now breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I receive your word. Like seed sown in the soil of my soul. Let it bring fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. Amen. Amen. Well, summer's almost done. School is almost back in session. So uh, I know that some of our folks are running off to vacation quickly to get all they can before it's over. How many of you are glad the kids are back in school? Look at that. I mean, it's almost like a universal rejoicing. So we're almost there. Tonight we're going to look at um, the last half of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Now last time we ended with Peter's powerful words regarding four things that had to do with us. God's sublime purpose, his sovereign priesthood, that's you, his secret principality, that's the church, and his secured people, that's you, all having to do with us, his church. So God has a hat way before the world began, he had a plan, and his plan was the redeemed church of Jesus Christ. Now, we're continuing through chapter 2, and what Peter has to say about our separation from this world. We are in it, but we are not of it. Amen? Amen. Peter has already discussed our separation by birth That is, by the new birth, when we were born again, he separated us from this world. And by belief, uh, now that we believe on Jesus Christ, that separates us from the world. Because how many of you have realized the world's not real crazy about Jesus? That lost world out there, amen? Now, when we use the word separation, we're talking about sanctification. Sanctification, that means it is the process, lifelong process, whereby God separates you and me from this world. That is, from the sin of the world, the thinking of the world, the behavior of the world, the worldview of the world, and he transforms and renews renews our mind by the washing of water by the word. What's happening to us tonight is our minds are being renewed by the washing of water by the word of God. But now he's going to turn to our separation by behavior. So we have separation by new birth. We have separation by belief. And now we're going to look at separation by behavior. Verse 11, chapter 2. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now I want you to notice first, what our attitude is to be towards this world. He said, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. We are strangers and we are pilgrims just passing through. This world is not our home. Amen? How many of you, as time goes by, you just have this feeling on the inside? You know, the older I get and the more I go on with God, the more I'm so aware, this is not my home. I'm looking for a place whose builder and maker is God. Amen? So, strangers and pilgrims, Peter calls us, just passing through. The world, as found in the Bible, is simply human life and society, but with God left out. The world is human life and society with God left out. That's what the world is. And the Bible says it's the devil's lair for sinners and his lure for saints. That's why John came along and said, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but they are from the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2. Now, now the world he's talking about is not God's beautiful creation. It's not the, the beautiful trees and the sky and the planets and all the creatures and the wonderful creation that God made. That's not what he means by the world. He means the system, the demonic, satanic system, the the world system that is absolutely set against God. Uh, It's in rebellion against God. This world does not embrace God or love God or love the word or love his son. This world is in direct rebellion and uh, is, is, uh, it, it's a renegade world. And so that's the world we're not to love. And that's the world we're not a part of anymore. And that's the world the Holy Ghost every day is more and more removing us from. That world. We are strangers here. A pilgrim is a man going home. He has his eye on another place. His affections are elsewhere. This is part and parcel of our separation, the way we view the world. So I don't know how you view the world tonight, but I want to encourage you to look at this world as we're in it, but we're not of it. We don't think like it. We don't act like it. We don't live like it. We don't embrace its ideals. We don't embrace its values. We have another kingdom, another king, another world, another life, and another set of values and another set of beliefs. Amen? And the two are completely counter to each other. Now, not only are we to have a new attitude toward the world around us, but also toward the war within us. Notice what Peter says. He says, you're you're a pilgrim and a stranger in this world. In light of that, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Now, the word abstain means to hold oneself from these lusts. The word fleshly refers to the cravings and the strong desires of the sensual side of our nature. Now, let me talk to you about your old nature for a minute, because a lot of people don't understand this, all right? The Bible teaches that the old nature in the believer coexists with the new nature. If you want to read about that, read Romans 7. What I want to do, I do not do. What I don't want to do, that very thing I do. Oh, wretched man, who will deliver me, deliver me from this death? That's Romans 7, Romans 8. Paul says, if we by the power of the Holy Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, he's talking about that old nature, we will live. If we by the power of the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, we, the sinful deeds of the body, we will live. So there is a war going on inside of us between that old nature, the flesh, and the new nature, the new man that was created when we were born again. We were born not of the will of man, but of the will of God by the eternal, incorruptible seed of God's word. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, all is become new. That's true. So you have within you a brand new creation, a new man, a new inner man. And I'll tell you, one of the signs of being born again is your want-to-do changes, your motivations change. I didn't used to care about what God thought about anything, but now that I'm born again, I want to please him. I want to walk with him. I want to know him. And, And what grieves him, I want to avoid. And what blesses him, I want to immerse myself in. I want to embrace what he embraces, and I want to shun what he shuns. Now I'm in relationship with God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I have a new nature inside of me. But there is also that old nature, that old flesh, that the Bible says is at war within us with the new nature. Now the word war... When he says uh, we're at war, that old nature is at war within us, with the new nature. The word war is stratuamai, stratuamai. And it's the word for an encamped army. It is akin to the Greek word for soldier. So notice this now. The picture that Peter is painting is that 
of the flesh carrying on a sustained military campaign against the believer's soul. Today, you are aware of it. You are aware of it on the highway coming here tonight. You're aware each and every day that there is a battle going on inside of you between flesh and spirit. You're aware of it every day. If you're not aware of it every day, I want to meet you when church is over. Because you dead. See, the only way you're not aware of that battle is you're dead. It's a battle we go through every day. You know, the devil sometimes doesn't have to do a whole lot because the flesh does his dirty work for him. So Peter is telling us we're, we're in this battle, and while we can't lose our salvation, we can be defeated if we don't appropriate the victory that God has given us over the flesh. Amen. All right? So Peter says, How, what do you do about it? You abstain. You abstain. While Paul uses the word flee. He says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. You know that word flee is, is powerful. Because it also says if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. So we're to flee youthful lusts, and if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. That rhymes, doesn't it? If we flee youthful lusts, the devil will flee from us. All right? The word flee there means to run as if in terror. So how are we to view fleshly lusts? We are to run as if in terror. In other words, you don't stand there and debate with lust, argue with lust, uh, negotiate with lust. Amen. You run from lust. Amen. Come on, everybody. Run from it. The bottom line is, here's, here's what Peter's really telling us. There are some books we ought not read. There's some things we ought not watch. There's some people we ought not run with. Amen. Hold yourself from them. That's the meaning of the word abstain once more. Hold yourself from them. Now, next, Peter talks about our witness. And he says in verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, that's all about our witness. Conduct. He's conduct. Honor, conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles. Conduct is about your lifestyle. He said, let it be honorable. Somebody is always watching. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to encourage you to do something. Live your life as if, for sure, somebody is watching. I'm not trying to make you paranoid. I don't want you to be weird. But I want you to know that somebody is always watching. Uh, you know, people who know you're saved, they're watching. Now, you may not know they're watching there at the office or that your neighbors, your, your friends, your former friends, the people you used to party hardy with. You may not think they're watching, but they're watching. As soon as they know you're saved, they want to know if what you say you got is real. They want to know if it's real. They want to know if your professed change is solid, if it's really real. They want to know that. And so a long time ago, I've learned somebody is always watching. I remember Kathy and I, uh, years ago, we, we had the kids. We were at Disney World. And, man, I was all decked out in, in uh, Disney kind of clothes. And in other words, I, was, I looked like a real tourist, okay? I had all the, all the tourist stuff on. The weird, I look at pictures of the shorts I had on, and I just, you will never see that picture. Like, how in the world did I ever put those things on? But I did. And, and so we're just walking around through Disney World, you know, minding our own. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Pastor Jeff. And I said to Kathy, it can't be. There's got to be another Pastor Jeff around here. And here they come right up behind us. And it was people from our, our church. And, and hey, good to see y'all here. Hey, I was so glad I flipped that cigar five minutes earlier. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just, I'm making sure you're there. But what I'm saying is, you got to live like, you got to live like not only is God watching, but we have a testimony. We have a testimony. Amen. Um, I was getting a hamburger not too long ago. I don't get many hamburgers. This was very unusual for me. Matter of fact, I went into a, it was a convenience store 
that I had never been in in my life, but I was hungry. And I'd been at some event where they didn't feed us, and so I, I got to get something. So I went in there, and I'm standing in this line, and it, it's a real blue-collar kind of place, and, and, and I'm standing there. I got jeans on, and I'm just minding my own, and, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to church when this is over. I'm headed to the building. It was the middle of the week, and right behind me comes a voice, Pastor Jeff, scared me to death. I jump, turn around. He said, he said, you don't know me, but I know you. You're on the radio, aren't you? And I said, not me. No, no. I, I said, yes. And he said, I heard you order. And I said, that's got to be him. Everybody say with me, somebody's always watching. I say, well, that's you. People know you more than they know me. No, trust me. You have a testimony. You have a witness and so he says, conduct your lifestyle honorably among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Now that word visitation is from the Greek word episkope. Now episkope is the, the word we translate into bishop. Episcope, bishop. We get Episcopalian church from episcope. But the idea is to scope out or to see everything. So it's talking about a visitation from God. Look what he says. That these who have watched your honorable lifestyle will glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean in the day of Episcopate? What does that mean? That means that sometimes God pays a special visit to the earth. Okay? Follow me now. Now, he's watching everything all the time. He's watching us right now. He is omnipresent everywhere at once, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, all-knowing. He knows everything before it even begins or ends. But watch this now. There are times he visits. He visited the generation of Noah and pronounced it under judgment. He visited Sodom and Gomorrah and pronounced it under judgment. Remember those three angels showed up at Abraham's door, at his tent door? He was visiting. He visited earth in the person of Jesus Christ. There are times when God visits a nation, or visits a people, or even visits a person. Now, what he's saying here is, if you live your life right, there are going to be some people who are going to look at your life, and they're going to go, wow, it really was real. So they're going to embrace your Jesus so that when God visits, they're not cringing in fear. They're glorifying God in the day of visitation because your life helped them come to Jesus. Amen? Isn't that a powerful thought? Isn't that a powerful thought? So who's watching you? I'm not saying you've got to be perfect, but I am saying be sincere. Be real. Be authentic. All right? Be a real believer. Like I said, son, if you mess up, fess up. Walk with God. Because who knows? There's somebody in your orbit who's going to go, wow, it it really was real. And they come to Jesus. And then there is a day when God visits, either to favor them or to bring judgment. And they glorify God in the day of visitation because they're right with him through Jesus, because of your testimony. Amen. Amen. Now next, Peter shifts gears from our separation to our submission. Now this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm expecting all of you to be jumping up and shouting me down in just a moment because I know this is your favorite word, submit. Can everybody say submit? Submit. Now tell me you like that word. Oh, you liar. You don't like that word. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) We don't like that word. As soon as we read it, we don't like it. It's like repent. I don't like the word repent. Repent, you know, but submit. Now, he's, he's going to talk about now our submission in a lot of verses. Starting in verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Now, when he says governors, to us that would be police be law enforcement, 
whether to the king as supreme, I'm going to change it, or to law enforcement, as to those who are sent by who? By him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. That's what law enforcement is for. Is law enforcement perfect? No. Do they make mistakes? Yes. But are they commissioned by God to maintain law and order? Yes. Do they have authority from heaven? Yes. They do. All earthly authority is imperfect, but that doesn't mean it's not real. How many dads are in here? Raise your hand, dads. All right, you're the, you're, you're the head of your home. You are the head of your home. You have the authority of God to be the head of your home. Now let me ask you this. Are you perfect? Every perfect dad in here, raise your hand. Oh, Lord, strike him, Jesus. Oh, he's down already. No. All right. In our imperfection, does God still leave his authority upon us? Come on, everybody. No earthly authority is perfect. But God doesn't remove his authority because they're imperfect because all human beings are imperfect. Now, First Peter says we're to submit to human law. He says every ordinance of man, that's talking about the laws of men. And why do we do it? For the Lord's sake. Now, this verse wouldn't preach well in our culture right now. We're filled, our nation, and if you don't know this, I want to know what cave you're living in. Because right now, our nation is filled with marches and protests and demonstrations and mass campaigns of civil disobedience. Our country is filled with lawlessness and rebellion against God's order. Against God's order. There is in our nation right now a, a slice of the American pie that, is, that, is, that hates law enforcement, hates authority, hates um, Washington. I don't have a love for Washington, but there is an authority God has invested in our government. Amen. Is it perfect? Far from it. But the authority is still there. See, there is a hatred, there is a rebellion, there is a lawlessness moving through our country that is very concerning right now. And so Peter says, I want you as Christians, submit to human laws. Now the word submit is a Greek military term regarding the rank and file of an organized group of soldiers. That's how that word is used. And they may not like their orders or even agree with them, but they submit And with a good attitude. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And if they don't submit, they are AWOL. Okay? So the word submit that he uses here in this verse is a military term. It has to do with receiving orders you don't necessarily like. And I can think of a lot of things the Lord has told me to do that my flesh doesn't like. I don't always feel like forgiving people that wrong me. I don't want to forgive them in my flesh. I want to go take vengeance. Or I want to see them get theirs. Come on, don't look at me so holy. You do the same thing. And, and if somebody wrongs you and three months down the road you hear that something bad happened to them, you do not go, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord Jesus. I just pray for them. No, and something inside of you goes, yes. They had it coming. God just undertook for me. Come on, tell the truth. There, there are certain orders that we have been given as Christians I don't like. I don't like. I don't like. But you know what? I say, yes, sir. And I find that when I do them, I have great peace. But, but my flesh doesn't like them. Now, we don't have a king, but we do have a president. And he, along with all civil authority beneath him, are to be obeyed. The only time they're not to be obeyed is if they require you to do something directly against your faith. And that is where Peter and the apostles said to the civil authorities of their day, 
We must obey God rather than man because they had been ordered to not preach in the name of Jesus Christ and they could not stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. They were under a higher order. They were under a higher law. We have been ordered by God to preach Jesus Christ so we must obey God rather than men. But unless it's something like that, we're to obey. As mentioned earlier in this series, the Emperor Nero was wreaking havoc with the church, imprisoning and murdering God's people. Yet Peter and the church, watch this, they led no revolt against him. Come on, everybody. Think with me a minute. They were being wronged on a level that you and I could only remotely imagine right now. They were being killed, imprisoned, slaughtered, stalked, losing jobs, losing their homes, having all their goods confiscated simply for being a Christian. But watch this, Peter led no revolt. He could have. The whole church looked to Peter. He led no revolt. They put together no marches. Church of Jesus Christ did not put together a Christian march against Nero. They organized no resistance. They didn't call for any violence. Because Peter had learned from Jesus the way to deal with social ills is to first deal with spiritual ills. Jesus went about everywhere doing good and changed the world. Jesus not one time led a revolt, led a protest, led a march, incited violence of any kind. When one disciple decided to take up violence in his name, and it was Simon Peter, and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus picked up the ear and reattached it and healed the man and said to Peter, put away your sword. He that lives by it will die by it. Our Lord was never violent. He he, he did not have the spirit that we see right now manifested all the time in our country. He didn't have it. It wasn't there. He went about everywhere doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He dealt with spiritual ills and he changed the world. Now, next, Peter explains why we must submit to those in authority over us. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. Well, that's enough for me. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, a shortage of which there is not in our country. Okay? Verse 16, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood or the brethren. Fear God. Honor the king. Now, we are to be a law-abiding people so that those, here's why, so that those who would want to slander or accuse us are put to silence. Now, this phrase is from a Greek word meaning to muzzle. The phrase put to silence means to muzzle. You literally muzzle your critics when you obey the law. Because, see, this world is always looking for a reason to accuse you. Because this world is set on fire by the accuser of the brethren. I mean, look at our country right now. When you read the news, all that's happening is accusation, counter-accusation, accusations, counter-accusations. Our nation is consumed right now with the accuser of the brethren, with, with constant condemnation and accusations. I mean, it's just every day. It's the news cycle every day. It's the way of this world. It shows you who's in charge of this world. The devil. Because it's just, it, it's constant. Act. So he says, if you want to put to ignorant or put to silence, if you want to muzzle the ignorance of foolish men who are always looking for a way to accuse you, then, then it's the will of God that you obey the law. The word ignorance he uses to describe our critics means culpable, self-imposed ignorance. In other words, they are willfully ignorant. They are willfully ignorant. The word foolish means senseless one. Now, I want to put, that, put those two and put together those two, and, and here's the phrase. It means willfully culpable, senseless fools. You will put to silence or muzzle the ignorance of willfully culpable, senseless fools. 
There's a lot of mob activity in our country right now. Have you ever, have you, have you seen on YouTube or anything when, when a re- reporter uh, goes into the midst of these mobs, uh, and we're talking Antifa, which is supposed to be an anti-fascist group, but they are fascists because they go to, they go to silence anybody that disagrees with them. That's fascism. And, and they have become very violent. But I, I've seen reporters go, go amongst them and say, what are you really about? What are you protesting? And they draw a complete blank. They are... They are willfully culpable, senseless fools. They don't even know why they're there. They they don't know what they're doing. You say, why are you here? Tell me, define your cause for me. And they stare like a deer stares at headlights at this reporter. And And they got the black hood on so you can't see their face. So, so, you know, the word of God is so eternally evermore true. They are willfully culpable, senseless fools. They don't even know why they're doing it, but they're doing it. And, and that's the mentality out there. Let me tell you, if I'm going to be out there putting my life on the line, I'm going to know why. Right? Peter says that when we obey the law and live uprightly, the willfully culpable, senseless fools who want to slander us won't find what they're looking for. Amen. Say, well, you know, I live clean and I do obey the law. What are you going to say about me? I walk with Jesus. What are you going to say? I love the Lord. What are you going to say? I don't steal. I don't curse. I'm not a drunkard. I'm not a drugger. I live clean. I love people. I do good things for others. I feed the poor. I help the disadvantaged. What are you going to say about me? You're going to have to make it up. He also exhorts Christians to never use their liberty in Christ as a cloak for vice. That is, don't say this to yourself. Well, I'm set free in Jesus, so I can do what I please. Now, I want you to read this next phrase with me. This is a true statement. Read it with me. Liberty, come on, everybody, ready? Liberty is not the freedom to do what you want, but the power to do what you ought Freedom in the ability to go where I want, when I want, and do what I want. Freedom is having the power from God to do what I ought to do. Amen. That's true freedom. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, you'll know the truth and it'll set you free. Now, verse 17 is all about how to respond to men and to God. Peter says, honor all men. Honor all men. No matter their color, class, or creed. We're to honor them. We do this by seeing them through God's eyes who loves all men. And then he said, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. Can we say the word honor? Honor. You know, honor is a lost virtue in our culture. Honor, honor. Let me talk to you about honor just for a moment. Honor is a lost virtue in our culture. If we don't like a person in authority, we turn on them. We despise them. And we even hate them. But the person who understands honor knows that you can honor a person's God-given position whether or not you honor the person. Come on, everybody. We've got to understand honor in its three-dimensional meaning. It's more than just, well, if you are honorable, then I'll honor you. No, 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 no. Honor is way bigger than that. Honor is if if you're in a God-given position... I can honor the position even though I don't honor you. See, when I get pulled over by the police, never happens. But if I did, I'm not going to interview him and say, well, tell me about your family life. Are you faithful to your wife? Or do you drink when you're not on duty? Uh, are you on drugs? Or are, do you cuss? I don't sit there and give him a personal interview before I decide to honor him. No, when I see the badge then I immediately honor the position. This is not rocket science. This is easy. But see, we've lost that in our culture. If, you, if I don't consider you to be honorable, I'm not going to honor you. You've you got to think like me, believe like me, talk like me, walk like me, be like me, or I'm not going to honor you. And our culture has totally missed the boat. And there is such a lack of honor out there, it shocks me. It is stunning to me how we have lost the whole concept of honor. 
Can I go where angels fear to tread for a minute here? Okay, I don't agree with everything President Trump does. I don't agree with everything he is as a man. But his position is from God. It says so in Romans 13.1. All authority comes from God. So though I can't honor perhaps everything he does, I, I honor the position. And it's been that way with every president we've ever had. I, I, I had to honor, I've, I've not liked more than I've liked. And, and I've had to decide, I've got to honor the position, even though I don't honor the man. And it's this way in all of life. You can have a boss you, you don't like personally. But, but if that's your boss, until he's no longer your boss, we're to honor the position. Because God allowed that person to be in that position. He may be a scoundrel. She may be terrible. But, but as long as they're in that position and I'm under them, and we're going to read about that in just a minute, then I honor that position. Or I'm going to end up fired we got to get off of this, I'll honor you when I like you, dude. No, I'll honor you if you're in a position that God has given you. Come on. That's what he's saying here. We're about to get into a, a, a real fun realm. Peter next turns from the Christian submission to the state to his submission to those over him in the everyday affairs of life. He says about bosses and employees. Servants, verse 18, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the what kind? Harsh. This is hard because nobody likes the thought of submitting to somebody who is harsh. The word Peter uses here for servant is the Greek word that means household servant. And it covers everything. It covers the person who could have still been a slave back in the first century all the way to a freed man who has decided to remain in his former master's house and in his employ. And here's the idea that Peter is giving us. As long as you're there, do your best to maintain a submissive spirit, even if the master, the boss, is harsh. For this reflects the spirit of Christ. Watch this. Who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Since we live in a free capitalist society, where you and I, for the most part, are free to leave one job for another, this verse is not advising us that we remain in a bad situation. I don't think you ought to leave until the Holy Ghost tells you to. But aside from being subject to the Holy Spirit, as long as you're there, we're to reflect the spirit of Jesus with a submissive spirit. As long as we're there. And if we can no longer uh, reflect a submissive spirit, we need to go. Amen? So here's the way I like to look at it. If Jesus has me there and my boss has been granted that authority by God, and again, he may be a scoundrel. He may be a jerk. He may be terrible. He may be godless, but God is still allowed him to be there, okay? So when I submit to him, I'm not submitting to him or her. I'm submitting to the Lord. I'm submitting to the Lord. How, how, listen, if we don't look at submission that way, how are we going to make it in submission in anything in this life? I mean, wives submitting to husbands. There's a lot of husbands. Listen, I wouldn't want to live with them. And there have been times I wouldn't want to live with me. All right? But, but how is that woman ever going to submit to the husband if she doesn't look at it like in submitting to him, I'm submitting to my Lord, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, not the man being your Lord, the Lord Jesus. See? So how All submission works that way. You've got to see past the person to the God who put them there. And that's who you're submitting to, ultimately. That makes submission a whole lot easier. Well, y'all are grim tonight. Now, just this is listen. This is Christianity 101. This is not deep. This is hardly even meat. This is um, this is strong milk. Okay. Now he, he says in verse 19, for this is commendable. 
If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? In other words, if you did something wrong and you're paying a price for it, big deal. You're having to pay the price for what you did wrong. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. If you take it patiently when you're doing good. Now, here's what I believe he's driving at. If a Christian is employed in a place that requires him or married to somebody who requires him or her to do something against his or her Christian conscience, then he or she, out of conscience toward God, must refuse. All right? This refusal sometimes brings suffering on account of an angry boss or an angry spouse or whoever it is that's over you that is requiring you to do something that your conscience says is sinful. So you say, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. And then they retaliate against you. Peter says, if in that context, you suffer for doing good and take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Okay? I'm real sorry, boss, real sorry, honey, but I can't do that. And if they retaliate and you're suffering, God has his hand on you and God says, I'm going to bless you for this. The exception would be, and I got to say this, if you're being physically abused, harmed, threatened, your life is in danger, I'm not talking about that. You need to get out. I can't believe you said that, Jeff Wick, where I just said it, and I'll say it again. If you're being physically abused, your life is in danger, you're being threatened with your life, get out. Take steps. But if I'm being, you know, if I'm being ostracized or if a boss is mad at me, if I've been demoted because I took a stand, God sees it. And God says, it's commendable with me. I'm going to be sure that you're blessed. Joseph had not done one thing wrong. And Potiphar's wife lied about him. And had him thrown in prison for something he did not do. And what did God do? God said, I see it, Joseph. You're suffering for doing right. Because you fled from that woman. And because you fled from that woman and did not commit adultery with her, then God is with you. Even though it doesn't look like it, you're in prison for something you didn't do. But hang on, Joseph, because I've got a plan that's going to blow your mind. And one day he was delivered from that prison. He went from prison to pinnacle. He went from pit to pinnacle and became second only to Pharaoh over the whole land of Egypt. So God took care of him. And what had happened? He was suffering for doing right. It's not an easy thing to suffer for doing what is right. But Jesus is our prime example. The Bible says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus suffered supremely, folks, for doing only good. He never did anything that was not good. He's our example. And this is what Peter elaborates on next. Look at verse 21. For to this you were called. Say that with me. To this I was called. What was I called to? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, but he suffered for doing what was right. Jesus is our example in suffering for doing what is right. Peter says in verse 21 that he suffered for us. He suffered for us. I want you to think about that. Say with me, Jesus suffered for me. That is absolutely amazing when you stop and think about it. Commentator John Phillips writes this. We picture him, that is Jesus, light years before time ever began, dwelling in unapproachable light, dwelling in perfect harmony with the Father and the Holy Spirit in indescribable glory. He was uncreated, self-existing, co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. 
He was God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead. His wisdom was infinite, his power without measure. He existed in unimaginable glory and bliss, yet he suffered for us. Man. Phillips continues, In the council chambers of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreed that they would act in creation. The Son was the active agent. I gave you the verse there, Colossians 1.16. He made all things. Did you know that? Amen. Nothing was made that was not made through Him. Jesus made all things. Can I say it again? There's not anything that was made that wasn't made through him. God conceived it. The son executed it. The son was the active agent. He exerted his wisdom and his power and galaxies of stars sprang into being and filled space with billions of sources of light. Planet Earth, a bright blue sphere in the Milky Way was chosen to be the home of man. Jesus proceeded to command countless forms of life into existence. And his crowning creation was man, you. This creator Jesus is the one who suffered for us when sin raised its ugly head. Because Adam sinned, the creator Jesus must become the Christ Jesus. This mighty Messiah stepped out of glory to be born of the Virgin Mary. He further condescended to become servant of all, and he condescended even more to finally die on the cross where he took our sin upon himself. Amazing. Amazing. So Peter says in verse 21, we're to follow in his steps regarding submission. That is, we're to do right, and if we suffer for doing right, we're to trust God with our situation and with our case. In verse 22, he details the total innocence of Jesus. Jesus never committed a sin. He never told a lie. There was no deceit on his tongue. Never did he so much as tell a white lie. Nothing. He never told a half-truth. His favorite phrase was, truly, truly, I say to you. A completely innocent God-man died on the tree for you and me. In verse 23, Peter describes Jesus' response to being wronged. I love this. Who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself, committed himself, To him who judges righteously. Now these words are strong. The word for revile is not only to rebuke, but also to abuse. When he was abused, when he was rebuked and abused, he did not abuse in return. Jesus was constantly, verbally abused, and then finally in the end, he was horrifically, physically abused. But before that event at the cross... The Pharisees and the religious leaders accused him of being born out of wedlock, a child of fornication. They accused him of being demon-possessed. They accused him of being a false teacher and a false prophet. And our Lord Jesus did not retort in kind, nor did he ever threaten revenge. And we're to follow his steps. Now, why didn't Jesus defend himself? Because he knew his case was in higher hands. Oh, folks, we got to get this. Do you know when you're abused, when you're wronged, when somebody does you dirty, betrays you, persecutes you, criticizes you for your faith, whatever, do you know that when that happens, your case is in the hands of somebody way higher than earthly people? Do you know that? Do you really know that? Because Jesus really knew that. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. Amen. We're to follow his steps. You know, I've left all kinds of things. I'm going to shoot real straight with you and be transparent for a moment. I've left all kinds of things that have been done to me, primarily in ministry, in the hands of the God who judges righteously. All kinds of things. I've been robbed. I've had things stolen from me. 
I've been lied about. I've been slandered. I've been ridiculed and criticized for things that were not true. I've had people look me right in the eye and tell me they stole from me. I've had all kinds of things happen while in ministry. In my opinion, there have been a few times I've been abused. Rumors that weren't true. Junk. Garbage that took place. Primarily amongst people who claim to be Christians. But you know what I've done? I've given it to the hands of the one who judges righteously. See, I find peace with that. How do you go on if you don't do that? you got to give it into the hands of the one who judges righteously. And here, here's what I believe. That either on this earth or in the judgment, my God is going to handle what's been done. And, and in, on earth or in the judgment, God's going to handle what's been done to you. Because he is the God who judges righteously. Amen? Now, Peter closes with reminding us that Jesus died for our sins, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He bore your sins and mine in his own body, so that your old man, the sin nature, might be crucified with him so that you can live unto God. The word for healed here, with his stripes you were healed, primarily refers to spiritual healing, and I gave you all the verses you can look up to confirm that. And let's stand together and read the last part together, can we? Let's just read this out loud together. Ready? Before our wonderful Savior died for us, we were like lost sheep going astray. But now we have come home to our shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Amen. Can we lift our hands to the Lord Jesus tonight? Lord, we just thank you that you are the overseer and the shepherd of our souls. Thank you, Lord, that we can leave in your hands the wrongs done us as we follow in your steps, for that's what you did. Thank you, Lord, that not a hand is laid on us, not a word spoken against us that is not put in the record book of heaven and that you will not answer somehow, some way, someday. And so, Lord, we commit these things to you. We give them all to you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your powerful word. Thank you that you suffered for us and gave your life so that we could live. In Jesus' mighty name.